Hello, and welcome to Thinking Hard and Slow, the podcast of the Royal Institute of Philosophy. I'm Julian Bagini. There are innumerable podcasts offering bite-sized ideas and intelligent chat. Thinking Hard and Slow offers something a little different, the opportunity to settle down and listen to an extended philosophical lecture, followed by a discussion digging even deeper. All our guests are philosophers or related thinkers at the top of their game. Their brief is to talk to intelligent and curious listeners who may know nothing at all about their subject. Series 1 mainly features talks from this year's London Lectures on the theme of Expanding Horizons. We're both celebrating and promoting the ways in which academic philosophy in Britain and America has been broadening its scope in recent decades, engaging with other traditions around the world, new themes and novel methods. This episode features Nilanjan Das. He's a lecturer in philosophy at University College London. He works on the connections between self-knowledge and irrationality, and also debates between Buddhist and Brahmanical thinkers about the nature of the self, knowledge and self-knowledge. He's also currently writing a book on the 12th century Indian philosopher and poet Sriharsha. After the talk, we'll be launching into a discussion which featured questions from our live online audience. Before we do that, here's Nilanjan Das on The First Person in Buddhism. In classical South Asia, one of the central topics of philosophical debate was the nature and the existence of the self. So the tradition I shall be focusing on what I shall call Sanskrit philosophy. It's a collection of different traditions of thought, which began around the beginning of the first millennium CE and which produced a range of different philosophical texts in Sanskrit. So in Sanskrit philosophy, the self is often understood as the referent of the first person pronoun, I. Now, that does not tell us much about the nature of the self or its existence, but we can flesh it out using that very abstract view. So often in ordinary language, the first person pronoun is used to refer to a subject who serves as the bearer of mental state. So take self-ascriptions of the following form. I see the hawk on the picket fence, or I think that Bob is in his office. In these cases, the word I seems to be referring to a subject, someone who is the bearer of the relevant mental states, states of seeing and states of thinking. Similarly, in ordinary language, sometimes the first person pronoun I refers to an agent who freely performs actions. So take the following example. I didn't raise my hand at the meeting, but I could easily have done so. In this case, I'm ascribing an autonomous free action to myself, who is supposed to be the agent who performed that action freely. Finally, in ordinary language, the first person pronoun is also used to refer to something that persists through time. So consider, I remember that I went to the zoo on my fifth birthday, assuming that these two occurrences of I refer to the same thing, which means that my current self also existed earlier when it went to the zoo on my fifth birthday. 
The same goes for the following ascription. I am saving up money so that I would be comfortable in my old age. Here again, if you assume that the two occurrences of I refer to the same thing, it would mean that my present self would continue to exist in the future. And that is why it makes sense for me to save up money so that my future self is looked after. So given this, in classical South Asia, the Sanskrit philosophers often took the self to have three features. First of all, it is the subject of mental states. Second, it is the autonomous agent of actions. And it is something that persists through time. Now, the debate in classical South Asia about the self was between two groups. On the one hand, we had the Buddhist philosophers. On the other hand, there were the Brahminical philosophers. So many Brahminical thinkers thought that the self substantially or fundamentally exists. So these are technical terms which will be explained later in greater detail. But the Buddhist philosophers typically denied this. So they defended this view, which is often called the no-self thesis. But the question that we shall be concerned with is just this. If there is no fundamentally existent self, does the first-person pronoun, I, refer to anything at all. So why does this question matter? So if the first person pronoun I refers to nothing, if it does not pick out anything in the world, or if it does not stand for anything, the puzzle really is to explain how self-ascriptions of mental states and actions can be true or false. So just to make this clearer, consider again the examples that we have already looked at. I see the hawk on the picket fence. I think that Bob is in his office. Typically, in ordinary language, sentences with an empty term in the subject position aren't true or false. So just consider another example. Unicorns are commonly found in Canada. This sentence intuitively cannot be treated as true or false because the subject term in the subject position, unicorns, that's an empty term. It picks up nothing. So the worry is that if I refers to nothing, then the same should be true of self-ascriptions of mental states. You might wonder, so why does it, why is that a bad thing? So here's the problem. So if such self-ascriptions cannot be true or false, it becomes extremely hard to explain how inferences from such self-ascriptions can be valid. Just to give you an example, we can make inferences of the following form. I see the hawk on the picket fence. I am Nilanjan, therefore Nilanjan sees the hawk on the picket fence. So this inference is valid necessarily if the premises are true, then the conclusion is true. But if the premises couldn't be true, then this is difficult to show. So, our focus here will be uh, on a puzzle that arises around the first person in classical South Asia. So the Brahminical philosophers point out to the Buddhists that, well, if there is no substantially or fundamentally existent self, then the Buddhists need to explain how our first personal self-ascriptions of mental states and actions can be true or false. So. Our protagonist for this talk will be the Buddhist philosopher Vasubandhu, who tries to reconcile the Buddhist no-self thesis with the claim that I is a referring expression. 
So the text we shall be focusing on is his commentary on the treasury of Abhidharma, Abhidharma Kosha Bhashya, where he tries to defend this position. So just before we move on to the sort of main substance of this talk, uh, I want to say a little bit about Vasubandhu since you might not be familiar with him. So Vasubandhu was born in Purushapura in the kingdom of Gandhara, which is Peshawar in modern day Pakistan. He was probably active in the fourth and the fifth century CE. He was an exponent of three Buddhist traditions, Vaibhashika, Sautrantika, and Yogacara. The first two are Abhidharma traditions, Abhidharma being the sort of a system of texts which try to sort of explain and rigorously systematize the early teachings of Buddha. And finally, Vasubandhu's, the text we shall be look, looking at, it has two parts. One is Vasubandhu's treasury of Abhidharma, which is a Vaibhashika text, and his commentary on it, which is written from uh, a Sautrantika standpoint. So we will be ignoring Vasubandhu's Yogacara works, which too talk about the self, but they offer a different perspective on the same topic. So here, my aim will just be to reconstruct Vasubandhu's view about the first person pronoun. So let's begin with that. First, I will offer, I will reconstruct uh, the kind of reductionist view about the self that Vasubandhu defends. Then I'll talk about his argument for reductionism. Then I'll talk about his first this view about the first person pro person. Then I'll consider a certain problem and Vasubandhu's response to it. And the final section is just the conclusion. So let's begin with the reductionist view. So the view, the no self thesis, as I said, is the view that there is no fundamentally existent self. To understand that view, thesis, we need a distinction between two levels of existence. The first is fundamental existence, and the second is conventional existence. So on the Abhidharma view, something is fundamentally existent just in case it has no parts and cannot be conceptually analyzed into other things. By contrast, something that is conventionally or conceptually existent is a fundamentally non-existent object whose existence is practically useful for us to accept. So just to give you an example, ordinary objects like chariots and water are not fundamentally existent. So a chariot can be divided into parts and water can be conceptually analyzed into other things. On Vasubandhu's view, what fundamentally existent objects are basically property particulars. They are property instances of properties like solidity, heat, fluidity, and various mental occurrences, which have no parts and cannot be conceptually analyzed into anything else. So why does it matter for the no-self thesis? So Vasubandhu defends a certain view, uh, a certain reductionist view about the self. So he claims that the term self refers to a causally connected stream of momentary psychophysical elements called the aggregates, which are basically parts of the body as well as the physical and the mental events that accompany it. So basically, the idea is that the self is not a distinct substance, rather it's just a collection of these psychophysical elements. Uh, it's nothing over and above these psychophysical elements. 
So if that is right, given that a stream of aggregates has parts, uh, the self cannot fundamentally exist. So this in turn supports the no-self thesis, which just claims that the self is fundamentally, does not fundamentally exist. Okay, great. So what, in the next section, what we will do is look at Vasubandhu's argument for this view. So the argument for reductionism. So Vasubandhu actually distinguishes in his text between, text between two different conceptions of the self. So at a certain juncture of the text, he considers an objection from the Brahminical philosophers uh, about uh, that, as given that the Buddhists uh, believe in rebirth and transmigration, they are already committed to the existence of a self. So uh, the objection goes, goes like this. He says, now here, the outsiders, that is the non-Buddhists, having accepted the theory of the self, come forward, they say, if it is asserted that a sentient being passes to another world, is reborn in a different life, then a self is established. So this very claim, he says, is refuted by the sort of verse in his text, Treasury of Abhidharma, where it is said, the self doesn't exist. So after this, he goes on to explain in what sense the self doesn't exist. So he says, well, what sort of self doesn't exist? He says, that which is imagined to make a connection with other aggregates after having thrown away these aggregates. So basically the kind of self which sort of appropriates a new body, a new set of mental states after having abandoned the old body when it dies and the mental states that go along with it. Such an inner agent of action doesn't exist. So this has been said by the Blessed One, that is the Buddha, there is action and there is maturation of the results of action, but no self-agent is apprehended who throws away these aggregates and makes a connection with other aggregates elsewhere, that is in a different life. For there is a formula pertaining to the factors, this is just a certain Buddhist theory about how things come into existence. He says, with respect to that rebirth, there is this formula pertaining to the factors, namely when this is present, that arises, meaning that everything is causally conditioned, which is just an expanded statement of dependent arising, which is the Buddhist theory that everything that exists is causally conditioned. So, then he goes on to explain in what sense the self is not refuted by the Buddhists. He points out that he says, if this is so, what sort of self is not refuted? Just the mere aggregates. If the mere aggregates are figuratively described as the self, then that is not refuted. So this point is quite significant. Notice that on Vasubandhu's view, the aggregates can only be figuratively described as the self, not in a literal sense, because the aggregates themselves don't have the don't have the features that the self has. So the aggregates are momentary; they don't persist through time. They cannot really, strictly speaking, be distinct subjects or free agents of actions. So they can only, in a figurative sense, be described as the self. In Vasubandhu's picture, there are two different conceptions of the self. 
On the first conception, the self is an inner agent of activity which exists separately from the aggregates and acquires new aggregates when it is reborn and throws away the old aggregates when it dies. Under the second conception, there is no such inner agent of activity. The term self is just figuratively or non-literally applied to the aggregates themselves. Now, Vasubandhu goes on to argue that the first conception of self is much more harmful than the second one. So he says, well, just at the beginning of the section in his commentary on the treasury of Abhidharma, where he deals with the existence of the self, he sort of motivates the Buddhist view about the self in the following way. So he says, is it certainly the case that there is no liberation, no freedom from suffering anywhere other than this Buddhist path? He says, there isn't. What's the reason? The response is because those non-Buddhists are entrenched in a misleading view about the self. For they don't determine that this concept of the self applies to a stream of aggregates alone. Rather, they imagine the self to be a completely distinct substance and all afflictions arise from an attachment to the self. So just to explain the idea, uh, the view is that the non-Buddhists, insofar as they assume that there is a distinct substance, which is the self, which is the bearer of mental states, which persists through time, which performs actions autonomously, they are committed to a misleading view about the self, which in turn has a lot of harmful effects. It, it is the basis for all afflictions that give rise to suffering. So he explains what this misleading view is. He says the self view ascribes unreal selfhood to real objects, aggregates such as material form, the body and so on, treating them as an agent, as a subject and as being under one's control. And an attachment to extreme views, the view that the self is eternal or the self is destroyed at death, and the rest arise on the basis of that self-view. So they are said to be lacking any corresponding real object. So they are empty in a certain sense. So the view that emerges from this is this. So since the self-view involves a false view of the impermanent aggregates as a self, the afflictions that arise from the self-view, for example, self-love, can be abundant only by means of some sort of insight, by seeing the aggregates as they really are, and that is where the reductionist view about the self that the Buddhists defend is useful. So the argument for reductionism ultimately boils down to this. So the opponent in the same text says, well, still, how is it known that the expression self refers to a stream of aggregates alone, but not to any other referent? And the re response is, because there is an absence of perception and inference. So the view, roughly speaking, is that we cannot perceive the self, nor is there any good inference by means of which we can know its existence. So we have no reason to think that the expression self refers to anything other than the aggregates. So here's a more careful way of reconstructing the argument so the expression self refers to something. 
If the expression self refers to anything, then its referent can be established either by means of perception or inference. If neither perception nor inference can establish that there is a constituent of a person which exists separately from the aggregates and plays the roles assigned to the referent of the self. So from that, we need one more assumption, which is the crucial one, namely that the roles assigned to the referent of self can be played by a stream of aggregates. So given that, we can just conclude that the expression self refers to a stream of aggregates. So the way the argument goes is that it starts out with the commitment that the ref expression self refers to something, but it cannot be the kind of thing that the Brahminical philosophers claim uh, it is because neither perception nor inference support that. But the stream of aggregates can play the roles that we associate with the referent of, of the word self. So we can just conclude that the expression self refers to a stream of aggregates. But the, notice that the crucial premise in this argument is that the roles assigned to the referent of self can be played by a stream of aggregates. So how can we motivate that view? To do that, we actually need a positive argument for the claim that the first person pronoun refers to a stream of aggregates because the way we got to the different characteristics of the self is from the basic, more basic idea that the self is the referent of the first person pronoun. So we need to show that the first person pronoun refers to a stream of aggregates. So that is where Vasubandhu's discussion of the first person pronoun becomes relevant. So that's the topic of our third section. So Vasubandhu offers this theory in response, his theory about, of, about the first person in response to a certain non-Buddhist objection from the non-Buddhist. So the non-Buddhist asks, if the self doesn't exist, for the sake of what does one undertake action? So how is practical motivation possible? The response is for the sake of a purpose, like I would be happy, and I wouldn't suffer. Obviously, these are statements about oneself. So the person immediately asks, what is this thing called I, which is the intentional object, that is the thing which, is, which appears in this I awareness. And the response is that awareness, basically that first personal thought, I would be happy or I wouldn't suffer, has the aggregates as its intentional object. The thing that is represented by I there is basically just the aggregates. So that's where Vasubandhu states the view that I refers to the aggregates. So what are his reasons for thinking this? So he offers two arguments for the claim that I refers to the aggregates. The first is the argument from self-love. The second is the argument from self-ascriptions. So just to give you the passage very quickly, he says, he states the arguments as follows. The first one quite briefly, the second one is explained in a bit more detail. He says, how is this known? Then the response is, because there is love for them, that is the aggregates, and because there is co-referentiality of the I awareness, the first person of thought, with the awareness events that take the form fair and so on. In awareness events that take the form, I am fair, I am dark, I am fat, I am thin, I am old, and I am young, this I awareness, this concept I, is observed to be co-referential 
with awareness events that take the form, fair, and the like. But these are not features of a self. On that basis, too, it is known that this I awareness arises with respect to the aggregates. So this is a bit obscure, so we can sort of try to make this clearer. Um, so the first argument is simple. So the argument is that the referent of I, whatever I refers to, it's the target of a peculiar kind of affection or concern uh, that Vasubandhu and other Buddhists call self-love. So basically the idea would be that when I'm planning something, say if performing an action now so that say my future self would be happy, so I, on the, so I act on the consideration, I would be happy. There, I'm acting out of a certain kind of self-directed concern, which is what the Vasubandhu and other Buddhist thinkers call self-love. But it turns out, Vasubandhu and other Buddhist thinkers would claim that in fact, the target of such affection or concern are the aggregates themselves. So if I'm sort of act, performing an action now so that I would not be hungry later, suppose I'm cooking food, there what I'm really sort of, my cons target of my concern is either say the body so that certain sensations would not take place in the body or certain mental states or a certain stream of mental states so that certain bad sort of sensations or experiences would not occur within that stream of mental states. So from that, we get to the conclusion quite easily that the aggregates are the referent of I. The second argument is a bit different. It appeals to ordinary self-descriptions of physical characteristics. So the idea is that our ordinary self-descriptions, such as I'm fair, I'm dark, and so on, can correctly ascribe physical characteristics to the referent of I. Here, I'm ascribing fairness or darkness to myself. They can only be correct if physical aggregates can be the referent of I. Therefore, the conclusion is that the physical aggregates can be the referent of I. Now, these arguments, you might think, are not particularly convincing. So a, a Brahminical thinker can resist these arguments in at least three different ways. So the first way in which they could resist this, they could say that against the argument from self-love, they could say that, well, in fact, we do have future directed self-concern regarding our body or our stream of mental events only because we are confused about what the nature of the self is. We do have concern, self -direct, future directed self-concern for our aggregates, but that's because we are just massively deluded about the nature of the self. We mistakenly believe that the self is just these aggregates. So that's one way of rejecting the first argument, the argument from self-love. Against the argument from self-ascriptions, they might claim that self-ascriptions like I am fair don't correctly ascribe physical characteristics like fairness and darkness to the referent of I. They're only non-literally true. And indeed, in ordinary language, sometimes we do use the word I in a non-literal way. For example, if my car, for instance, is parked in the car park. I can say I am parked in the car park, but that's obviously not literally true. That's only a figurative use of I. 
The third objection is basically that anyone, suppose the Buddhist, suppose we grant that the Buddhist is correct, that physical aggregates can indeed be the referent of I. The objection is that anyone who allows the body to be the referent of I faces a challenge. They need to explain why this particular body, but not something, something else, someone else's body is picked out by the word I. So they need to explain how is it that the referent of I is always the body, a certain body, and not any other. And so far, Vasubandhu has not given us any response to any of these objections. So on behalf of Vasubandhu, what I want to do is give a possible response to this. The possible response to this argument depends crucially on a certain theory of reference that Vasubandhu himself defends elsewhere in the same text. So while arguing for a certain reductionist theory of persons, Vasubandhu defends a theory of reference. So the theory goes like this. The idea is that a concept refers to a certain kind of object only if, or if, sorry, incompetent users of the concept Applications of the concept are typically or normally caused by an initial awareness of objects of that kind. So this might seem a little bit, a bit abstract, but here's one way of understanding the view. Take the concept of a person. Vasubandhu points out that normally we apply the concept of a person when we undergo an initial awareness of various aggregates, say, someone, a body that moves around, or our own mental states, or the mental states of someone else. On the basis of that, we apply the concept of person, which is enough to make it the case that the concept of person actually refers to the body, or refers to the body plus the mental states that accompany it. So that is why he thinks that this theory of reference supports a certain kind of reductionist theory about persons, on which persons can be reduced to the body or to mental states. Okay, so we can use the same idea for the I concept, the concept of oneself, of I. So the idea would be that I, the I concept is applied in first-person thoughts, either on the basis of our sensory awareness of our body, when one thinks I am fair, or on the basis of our attention to our inner states, like our inner mental states, when one thinks I am in pain. So if Vasubandhu's theory of reference is correct, in either case, the application of, I, of the I concept is typically based on certain states of awareness, which is directed at aggregates belonging to a certain stream, so the I concept should refer to those aggregates. So that follows from, from his theory. The view has two advantages. That's the important thing for our purposes. So first, it accounts for Vasubandhu's uh, response to the third worry. So, um, so Vasubandhu, in response to the third worry, which just to remind you, it was the worry that why, if the word I refers to a certain body, why does it refer to a particular body and not to some other body? And the response to that would be simply that 
uh, an eye awareness can only refer to the stream of aggregates on which it causally depends in the right way. So the idea is that an eye awareness can, can only refer to a certain set of physical aggregates. The initial awareness regarding which sort of triggers the application of the concept I. So I cannot refer on his view to a body that doesn't overlap with the stream of physical aggregates on which the I awareness depends. So that's really, that helps him avoid the third worry. Second, it explains why Vasubandhu thinks that in some contexts, the referent of I may not pick out physical aggregates at all. So in a situation where the concept I is applied on the basis of some sort of introspective awareness of mental states, in that sort of situation, the word I may only refer to a stream of mental states and not to a stream of physical aggregates. So in the final analysis, what we have is that Vasubandhu's account of the first person pronoun involves two kinds of context sensitivity. On the one hand, it is context sensitive in the sense that what a certain use of the word I refers to depends on which aggregates serve as the causes of the relevant use of the pronoun. So, that, so, so which aggregate sort of triggers the use of the pronoun, either in first person thought or first personal talk. And second, it's context sensitive in the sense that depending on the context, the word I may sometimes pick out mental aggregates, sometimes it may pick out physical aggregates, or sometimes it may pick out sort of more unified stream of aggregates, which include both physical and mental aggregates. So generally then putting everything together, the theory basically boils down to this. In any context, an application of the concept I in a thought or any utterance of the expression I refers to a contextually salient collection of mental or physical or mental and physical aggregates, which serve as the proximate causes of the relevant awareness or utterance. Why is that? It's because the way we use the concept I is always either on the basis of the sensory awareness of some physical aggregates or on the basis of some introspective awareness of mental states. In either case, there is some set of aggregates which serves as the proximate cause of the relevant I awareness, the relevant first person thought, or the relevant utterance of the expression I. So that those are the aggregates that the word I or the concept I should refer to. So here's the conclusion. So on Vasubandhu's view, the no-self thesis can be reconciled with the view that I is a referring expression. So on his view, the I just refers to some set of aggregates, some stream of aggregates. A consequence of this view is that our first, our self-ascriptions of mental and non-mental states can be true or false. How? So consider self-ascriptions of mental states like I am pleased or I am in pain like typically Brahminical thinkers would claim that self-ascriptions of this sort ascribe mental states of pleasure and pain to a basis in which they reside, which is just the, a distinct substance called the self. By contrast for Vasubandhu, these self-ascriptions are similar to ascriptions of predicates like uh, the forest has borne fruit. Just to flesh out the analogy a little bit, 
in the that sentence forest the forest has borne fruit the expression forest does not ref refer to any unitary substance it only refers to a collection of trees while the ascription of the predicate has borne fruit conveys that some fruit has arisen having as its basis as its cause one or more of the trees in that collection the same is true according to vasubandhu of ascriptions like i am pleased or i am in pain here i refers to a stream of physical and mental aggregates while the ascription uh, of the predicates i am pleased and i am in pain conveys that a state of pleasure or pain has arisen having as its basis one or more of the aggregates within that stream so the analogy is a nice one in the sense that we can explain statements of this sort without assuming that the self is a distinct substance it can just be a collection of many things just like the forest importantly on vasubandhu's view none of these ascriptions can be fundamentally true or false this is because they presuppose the existence of streams of aggregates that are fundamentally non-existent they're just collections of things so they have parts and therefore are not fundamentally existent but on his view they can be conventionally true because they implicitly track causal relations amongst the different aggregates and can be practically useful so indeed given that the self that that i can indeed refer to a conventionally existent object the statement this ascriptions of mental states to oneself can indeed be conventionally true so they indeed can be true or false in a certain sense before we actually get into sort of details i just wanted to have make a few more observations more than anything else sir I think are relevant to this. I mean, our theme is expanding horizons. And I think if you go back to the archive of Wall Institute Philosophy Talks, um, there was a time where a title such as the Buddhist conception of, of self, the Buddhist use of the first person would have raised some eyebrows because they didn't really look beyond much beyond the channel, let alone other parts of the world. Um, but just a couple of things struck me here, and I don't know if you'd agree with this. That So first of all, the, the basic theory you're talking about of the first person of the self I mean, to my mind, in, in Western philosophy, we don't really get that until, what, the 18th century with Hume? Is that right? Are you aware of anyone sort of, certainly not as a significant theory put forward and widely supported? And also what, what I thought was more interesting was, because it was newer to me, was you have a, a, a causal theory of reference uh, around language. And if I was just, had a, just out of curiosity, I just Googled causal theories of reference and it sort of tells me, it began with Saul Kripke in the 20th century, right? So um, th there are these very much earlier and very rich d discussions of things which are directly related to questions that, that interest uh, Western uh, philosophers. Increasingly, people are recognising that, but just as sort of like as to the sociology of the profession sort of question, um, are, are you finding that there are still lots of people who need to be persuaded, do you think? Or, or has this argument been one that, that Western philosophers really have things to learn by looking a bit further afield? Yes, so thank you for that question. That's a great question. And it has many different aspects, which I think need to be disentangled a little bit. So one question is, it's certainly true that many of the theories that we, for example, learn about uh, 
in the philosophy classroom, they have sort of ancestors in many different, many different traditions of thought and not of all of those traditions of thought are European. So it is certainly in just in terms of doing history of philosophy, it is interesting to sort of explore these parallels or explore these earlier occurrences of the same ideas. And I think uh, Sanskrit philosophy or the philosophical texts written in Sanskrit are suddenly are a great source for, for many of these ideas. The one question is, um, there is still, uh, I think in just in terms of doing philosophy, there's still a question of uh, what the discovery of these ancestors of ideas actually can teach us in terms, just in terms of like, making progress in philosophical debates or making contribution to live philosophical debates. And I think there actually we can make a good case for exploding these topics in other traditions, partly because I think often the way these topics are treated in these other contexts have their own sort of contextual parameters. So they often pave the way for new solutions or they like these writers often give us new arguments or new theories, not just theories that already have been discussed, but theories that have not been discussed, or they often give us arguments against the existing theories that we have already considered. So in a way, I think doing history of say Sanskrit philosophy, for me often it, it's a kind of plays the role of like discovering new arguments and new theories that can be useful for making progress in relation to life questions in philosophy. So that is why I find interesting. So I'm not saying that that debate has been won already, but the only way we can win the debate is by doing first order work in the history of these other traditions of philosophy. My PhD was on, on personal identity and I remember actually being quite puzzled at the time that a lot of people seem to be very impressed with the objection to a kind of a you know a, a view of the self in which there wasn't a, a an actual concrete subject that an, an i needed a, a referent that you know because we say i i exist that i must refer to something and this somehow <laughs> seemed to sort of like almost prove the fact there had to be some uh, enduring um subject i always found that rather weak and i think if i'd had a uh, this text to hand it would have helped me to sort of a uh, understand that. Can I ask you one more question about the sociology of, of philosophy, if you like, as well? And uh, I hope I haven't got this hopelessly wrong, but I found it really interesting that you described your task in this talk to reconstruct Vasubandhi's views. And when you got to the point where Vasubandhu was silent, you kind of offered to kind of speak on his behalf, as it were, filling in the gaps. Now, I could be wrong about this, but it seems to me that that, that sort of approach resonates with a traditional approach uh, in, in the history of philosophy in, in South, of the subcontinent, whereby originality as such is not prized so much. And, and people present themselves as commentators and as interpreters. Actually, though, while doing that, they often are being quite original, but that's not the way people um, present themselves. I mean, first of all, is this just some sort of like crude misunderstanding or stereotype? Is there something to this? And if there if there is something to it, which I think it is, um, is there something in about about that kind of approach to to seeing yourself in the tradition as an interpreter, which you think is is useful that that can be learned from in in a culture which tends to 
much more value originality, being new, being your own person, if you like. So I actually do think there is something to be said about approaching texts from the history of philosophy as a commentator. So we generally see two different kinds of approaches to these texts. One is more historical, which tries to reconstruct the view in a way which is which sort of takes into account various facts about the author's intellectual context and also the substantive arguments that the authors give in their texts, which is a more sort of historical approach to the text. The other one is more sort of a an approach which is which is motivated by contemporary concerns where people are mining these historic these texts for answers to the questions that they already are sort of thinking about. And I think the commentarial approach in a way combines the virtues of both those approaches, but at the same time does something quite new. And I think sometimes self-consciously I do that, but um, I'm not sure how much I did that in this talk, but I do think there is something interesting about the commentarial approach in that it, for example, when the, the, uh, typically a commentator on a Sanskrit text would sort of present a sort of a initial reading of the author's text, and then they would pose a problem for the author or consider a problem that has come up between them and like between the time when the author was writing and when they are writing. And then they would try to resolve that question, sometimes using their own ideas, but in at other times by using ideas that the author themselves have put forward in other parts of the text. So in that sense, I am doing something which is uh, which fits that approach, because when I read Vasubandhu, these were the sort of obje obvious objections that came up in my mind. Then I looked at other parts of the text and saw that Vasubandhu, in fact, does have the resources to respond to that answer, uh, to, to that to those objections. And that, in, in, and that, in a way, gives us, I think, a better understanding, in some cases, of what the author themselves uh, themselves is doing and also sort of makes us makes the author view much more plausible than they than it otherwise would be if we just stopped with the historical purely historical reconstruction of the text that sort of resonates with me i think there's a rather curious way of reading some of the great dead philosophers rather literally if you like whereas it seems sometimes certain problems with their thought there seems to be a response to that, which is very much sort of there in the spirit. But because they didn't, you can't find the passage where they said it, it somehow means you're, you're not entitled to lay your hands on that and claim it, which does seem rather strange. I mean, there is a strong tradition in, in Buddhism. It's not just an intellectual exercise, is it? It's about paying attention to oneself as aggregates. And there's that paradoxical sense that it leads to self-knowledge, and yet that self-knowledge is often in, taken to be the knowledge that there is no self. So with my kind of uh, gloss on that and the question there, I just invite you, Neil Anjan, to respond to that whichever way you feel is best. Thank you. So uh, by self-awareness, we might interpret the notion of self-awareness in the Buddhist context in two different ways. So one idea could be that self-awareness is just a kind of awareness of oneself as being located in the world or having a certain kind of perspective on the world, 
which is not purely impersonal or objective, but it's a kind of a view from somewhere. So that might be one way of understanding the notion of self-awareness. Another could be just uh, a kind of awareness of oneself as a subject of mental states or as an agent of actions or something like that. Now, Buddhists, I think, often give an answer to to this sort of challenge of explaining self-awareness of either of these kinds by appealing to some form of error theory. So for them, really, though they would not deny that there is, we do sort of look out at the world from a certain perspective, they would certainly not deny that. They would say that, like, it's a mistake to sort of take that to be the perspective that is occupied by a subject or an agent. So there are many different Buddhist error theories that people, uh, that Buddhist authors, including Vasubandhu, give. So there are two salient ones, which I think are worth mentioning in this context. The first one is Vasubandhu, something that Vasubandhu himself defends in other Yogacara texts. So what he points out is that, in fact, um, uh, in fact, the way we sort of parse the sort of different mental states that we are undergoing you, is using uh, a schema which divides the world into an into apprehended apprehended objects, objects that we are aware of are, or are representing, and apprehenders, which could either be uh, a subject who is sort of grasping or be, is becoming aware of those objects, or mental states which are representing those objects. And Vasubandhu thinks that this division between apprehended objects and apprehenders is a conceptual distortion. So we have these innate conceptual tendencies to, to represent the world in an inaccurate way using this division between apprehended objects and apprehenders. So because he's writing as a Yogacara, where he's an idealist, he would say that, in fact, there are no mind-independent apprehended objects that we can be aware of, and there are also no apprehenders, no mental states that represent such objects or any subject who sort of grasps, grasps or represents such objects. So using that idea, we can sort of try to explain the sort of uh, impression that we all have when we are undergoing experiences of occupying the perspective of someone, some agent or some subject and looking out at the world. The, the story there would just be, which I think Vasubandhu would defend, would just be that this is a result of a certain kind of conceptual, constru conceptual construction. In fact, we are undergoing just experiences, but we are misinterpreting them as being experiences that belong to someone or experiences that are undergone by someone who occupies a certain perspective on the world. So that's one story that someone could give about the question of self-awareness. The second story, which is which more closely pertains to the question of how we become aware of ourselves as subjects of mental states, uh, there actually other later Buddhists tell a slightly different kind of story. But it, in spirit, it could still be reconciled with the general Buddhist framework within which Vasubandhu is working. So the idea is that, in fact, our conscious mental states 
are reflexively aware of themselves. So they are not, they don't just, so my experience say of a, a coffee mug doesn't just represent the coffee mug, but it also at the same time presents itself in some way. So each conscious mental state presents itself as being a sort of a subjective entity, which is representing an external object. So given that at every point, something like a subject is being presented, we sort of get confused since our mental life is continuous and we are going undergoing many such experiences like within any interval of time, we often mistake the discrete mental states which are presenting themselves as subjective entities to be a persisting subject. So the analogy that is often given here is that of a sort of a whirling firebrand. So the firebrand at every moment of time occupies a distinct position in space, but it looks like as if, looks as if it is a circle. Similarly, our discrete mental states they are sort of all separate and they all present themselves, but because they occur quickly together, it seems as if there is a persisting subject who is representing or which is undergoing awareness events about various objects. So that would be another error theory that explains how is it that we seem to be aware of a self or seem to be aware of a subject of mental states. It seems to me that a lot of people they kind of reach a point of almost impatience. They want to be told, well, is there a self or isn't there? And it seems to me that a lot of what you've been doing this talk is showing is that, you know, in a sense, there is a self. It's just not this enduring object. But perhaps as a way of kind of exploring that a little bit more about what the implications this have for what is or what isn't. Um, Lois L has a question here about the extent to which these ideas apply more generally. I mean, we're talking about selves as things with experiences and they have a special character, I guess. You know, experience has a, we think of as having a special character. But does this theory apply to other things in the world? Do I, do I understand everything in the same way? And is, does that mean the world is non-existent in a sense? So I think, yes, we do have to qualify that claim a little bit. So I started out with this distinction between fundamental existence and conventional existence. So on Vasubandhu's view, fundamentally existent objects are things that don't have any parts and are conceptually unanalyzable into other things. So if we accept that view about fundamental existence, then indeed the street is busy. It won't, cannot be something that is, cannot be a statement that is talking about uh, anything that exists at the level of fundamental reality, because the street itself is a sort of a collection. Maybe it's a collection of particles arranged streetwise. So if that's the view, that's the view we have about the street, a street cannot be a fundamentally existent object. So the statement that the street is busy can only add, cannot be fundamentally true. It is not sort of accurately reflecting how things are at the level of fundamental existence. However, Vasubandhu would say that indeed such statements indirectly track various kinds of facts that do hold at the level of fundamental existence. So basically the statement that the street is busy would express uh, some truth about the particles that are constituents of the street. And on the basis of that, 
we might be able to successfully act. For example, if I'm trying to decide whether or not I'll get to my university on time, I will indeed, I can indeed reason successfully on the basis of the assumption that the street is busy. But the reason why my actions are successful, my actions planned on the basis of that assumption are successful, is because that statement or that belief is indirectly tracking certain facts about how things, how the world is fundamentally. So the conclusion that Vasubandhu would derive from this distinction between fundamental and conventional existence is not that there is the world is non-existence because Vasubandhu would claim that the, there is a certain way the world is uh, fundamentally, there are fundamentally existent objects, but rather he would say that the normal, the ordinary objects that we talked about, like the street or tables or chairs, those are fundamentally non-existent. But that doesn't mean that there is any harm in talking about such objects, as long as we are clear about the nature of such objects, because by talking about such objects or thinking about those objects, we can track various facts about how things are at the level of fundamental existence. Does that help or does that answer the question, Julian? No, no, it, it does very much. I'd like to pursue this a bit more, though. Um, is this idea of fundamental and conventional existence essentially the same as the two-truth hypothesis later expanded by Nagarjuna? So first of all, a small sort of nitpicky point. So Nagarjuna actually is writing much earlier than Vasubandhu. So for, as far as we know, Nagarjuna is writing between the first and the second century CE, and Vasubandhu is active, as I said, in the fourth and the fifth century CE. So that's a small uh, historical point. So there is some overlap here between the two truths hypothesis that Vasubandhu is considering and the two truths view that we see in Madhyamika authors like Nagarjuna. This is because, this is partly because Nagarjuna himself, uh, when he writes, so he's a Mahayana Buddhist and he is sort of his main target of his criticisms. Um, those are Abhidharma Buddhists and Vasubandhu, at least in the text that we are looking at, he is writing as an Abhidharma Buddhist. So indeed, there is some overlap of thought there. However, there is actually a really important disagreement between Vasubandhu, someone like Nagarjuna. So Vasubandhu, in a sense, is a realist. So that's a technical term, and it's interpreted in lots of different ways. But the sense that is relevant to our purposes is just that he thinks that there are fundamentally existent objects. And the task of philosophy, in fact, and in fact, like Buddhist teachings do that, successfully according to him the task of like both buddhist teachings and the philosophy that is based on it is to sort of discover various kinds of truths about how the world fundamentally is so it's to discover fundamental truths about the world truths about fundamentally existent objects by contrast someone like nagarjuna is an anti-realist so nagarjuna would deny that there is any correct description of how the world is fundamentally. So while they might share the same conceptual framework, they would argue for different conclusions within that framework. So Nagarjuna, 
throughout all like his entire corpus, he argues for a kind of picture of the world where there is no fundamental level, where we cannot describe, correctly describe how, which fundamentally existent objects exist or what the fun world fundamentally is like. By contrast, Vasubandhu would certainly think we can do so and that there are fundamentally existent objects. Nagarjuna presumably takes the view then that this is the idea of emptiness, that there is no fundamental reality. It's, it's, it's all kind of aggregates, if you like. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So uh, again, so emptiness is such a term which is uh, interpreted by Buddhists themselves in many different ways. So I think in Abhidharma, at least, uh, the way the term emptiness, when Abhidharma philosophers talk about emptiness, they are normally just talking about emptiness in the context of persons and selves. So they would say that, well, uh, there is a sense in which, um, so, so they would say that persons are empty of selves in the sense that a person, which is merely a collection of aggregates, has no inner constituent like a distinct substance, uh, which the distinct substance called self, which the Brahminical theorists, thinkers recognize. So what they so their theory there of emptiness is simply a, the theory that no self of the sort that the Brahminical thinkers talk about exists. The person does not have such a self as an inner constituent. By contrast, in Mahayana, the theory of emptiness becomes a much more pervasive theory. So it's no longer a theory about the self or about persons. It becomes a theory in general about what exists or what fundamentally exists. So in the context, say, of Yogacara, which Vasubandhu himself is an exponent of, there the theory, basically, the theory of emptiness becomes the theory that things are empty of a certain kind of duality. So it's the same duality that I was speaking of earlier. It's the duality, the sort of pair of two things, namely an apprehended subject and an apprehender. So because Yogacara is a kind of an idealist tradition, the view simply says that there are only mental occurrences. There are no extra mental objects to be grasped or apprehended. And similarly, there are no mental states or subjects who grasp them or apprehend them. So there are neither apprehended objects nor apprehenders. So everything is empty of this duality, which consists in the apprehended objects and the apprehenders. By contrast, in Nagarjuna, it's a much, again, a much stronger thesis in the sense that Nagarjuna says that emptiness so everything is lacks, is empty of intrinsic nature. This is how people translate it often. But the word there is svabhava, which is more like, can be, is better translated, I think, as independent being. It's a kind of independent existence. So when Nagarjuna says things are empty of independent existence or independent being, what he means is that there is nothing that can be treated as fundamentally existent. So really, his theory is a kind of anti-realist theory, where he's simply denying that things can be treated as fundamentally existent. So what I want to point out is that the notions of emptiness are quite varied within Buddhism. And Vasubandhu is after a certain notion in this text, 
which may not be shared by other Buddhist authors. I think it's quite interesting that reductionism is often thought to be a particularly a Western thing. And it's often criticised as such, actually, that one of the problems with Western thought is it is so uh, reductive. It's wanting to cut down the world into its uh, finer elements and is missing out on the more holistic, if you like, or relational nature of reality. And I think it's quite interesting that in lots of ways, a lot of what we're looking at today looks very reductionist. You actually did use the term uh, reductionist to describe this view of the self. And how that relates to this distinction between conventional and fundamental um, reality. I, mean, I wonder, to put this a bit provocatively, if there's some kind of like metaphysical prejudice going on here. Because if we talk about fundamental and conventional uh, reality or existence, obviously fundamental has the sense of being more real, if you like, and conventional is just something uh, lesser. But I guess the question, I, the worry I have is, why would one think that, if you like? I mean, why are the, the smaller, as it were, elements of the world more real? There's a sense in which certain things are more fundamental to the structure of the universe than others. But that doesn't necessarily make them more real, does it? Amazing question. And I think it sort of brings us to a sort of a, a somewhat different aspect of the view that I did not mention during the talk. So... Many of these writers, especially the Abhidharma writers and the Yogacara writers, they subscribe to what is sometimes in contemporary philosophy is known as the Eleatic principle. The principle that causal efficacy or causal power is the mark of existence. So something can be treated as existent or treated as real, you know, sort of a, with a capital R, only if it makes a kind of a causal difference to the way the world is. Now, Vasubandhu often points out that, in fact, the objects that we are familiar with, like tables and chairs, or even persons or cells, these are objects which are causally redundant. So all the work that, say, a Brahminical philosopher wants the self to do can be done by other things, the aggregates themselves. So that makes the self causally redundant. It does no causal explanatory work. So there is no reason for us to treat the self as existent. So rather, he would say that that shows that there is no epistemic reason in the sense that there is no reason having to do with how the world really or truly is that uh, for them to sort of treat the self as existent. However, he will say that there are practical reasons for us to treat the self as existent because without assuming or without implicitly presupposing that we, there is a self or there are persons, it would be very hard for us to engage in the sort of ordinary activities that we engage in. So it would be hard for me to make long-term plans about where I, I will go or what I will do over the course of the day and things like that. So for that reason, it is practically useful for us to accept the existence of the self and which makes, which in turn makes the self a conventionally existent object, but not a fundamentally existent one. So one way of quickly answering your question is that the reason why the smaller things are more real than the macro objects or the larger objects, it's just that there's no reason, we have no good reason to attribute causal powers 
to the larger physical objects or larger objects like the self or the person. But, and all the work causally there that these larger objects are supposed to do can be done by the smaller things. That actually leads very nicely to the question from John Kaledger, actually, who wanted to know how aggregates can have agency because because you've just given that account there in terms of causal power. But I think that we, we tend to make a distinction between causal power and agency. So in other words, you know, the lightning strikes and my house catches fire and that, that's causation. Whereas I, you know, throw a Molotov cocktail at a house and it causes on fire. There's obviously the causation of the fire, but there's agency there, there's tension there. So, I mean, is there room for agency in this picture? And, and is it the aggregates that have agency or, or is, and in fact, this does relate to a, another question. Um, someone who goes by the tag of 44 Oblong on this was asking whether this, your view necessitates the view that the world is deterministic um, in that sense. So that, that question relates as well. So, so where are we here with causation and agency? Is there any? And if so, what has it and how? That actually is uh, certainly an issue that uh, Vasubandhu spends a lot of time talking about in the text that we are discussing. So Vasubandhu says that, in fact, there is a certain sense in which there is no agency in the world. So within, so there he actually quotes the grammarians, the Sanskrit grammarians, who define in while sort of talking about the category of the agent in grammar as the agent being, in the primary sense, just being someone who is independent and someone who independently brings about actions. And Vasubandhu points out that there can be no such agent because what brings about actions are the aggregates themselves and the aggregates cannot do anything independently. They always produce effects insofar as they're causally conditioned by other aggregates and other external factors. So there is definitely a sense in which Vasubandhu denies agency, that there is agency in the world. And we actually looked at a passage where he, uh, where he said that there is action and there are results of actions, but there is no agent. But there is a different sense in which they could still have a thinner notion of agency as always, a thinner notion of agency within this picture, which is just a matter of causation or a certain collection of aggregates being treated as the sort of causal basis for actions. And that thing, we can still make room for that thinner notion of agency within his picture. Now, this actually isn't a practically insignificant matter for Buddhists. For example, the later Buddhist writer, Shantideva, who is actually a Madhyamika, but he often uses earlier Abhidharma arguments for his purposes. He points out that, in fact, this picture that the Abhidharma theorists have undermines uh, many of our ordinary reactive attitudes, which are attitudes like uh, being angry at people for doing something wrong or being blaming someone for doing something wrong. So Shantideva points out that, in fact, if we realize or we see people as what they really are, as just collections of aggregates 
who are causally conditioned, which are causally conditioned by factors that are not under their control, then th that immediately undermines the ordinary sorts of attitudes that we take to towards people. Namely, we often get angry when someone wrongs us or we blame them because they have wronged us. And so in a way, I think uh, it's not just that this we are sort of engaged in this kind of an intellectual exercise where we are trying to decide whether there is agency or not. It's supposed to be that the, our discovery that there is no agency in this strong sense in the world, it's supposed to have certain kinds of downstream practical effects on us. It's supposed to sort of transform us into agents who don't take or adopt those sorts of attitudes towards other people. I've got a question here from Sarah Sawyer, one of your colleagues, I believe, although it may be another Sarah Sawyer. How does Vasu Bandu make sense of the fact that the present aggregate that is me remembers particular past aggregates, such as being at the zoo but not others? And doesn't that presuppose a, a, a fundamental self of some kind? Yes, so that indeed is a really difficult question to answer within Vasubandhu's framework. So what I'll do is I'll give you a bunch of different things that could be said, but always prefaced by the sort of what the text actually says. So Vasubandhu does consider that objection in the text because that's an objection that the Nyaya philosophers who, who are Brahminical thinkers raise against Vasubandhu. So the Nyaya philosophers say that, in fact, there has to be a fundamental self because otherwise it would be hard to explain how we remember anything. Someone can remember something, an object O, only if they have earlier undergone an experience of that object or a thought about that object. But that already commits us to the existence of a subject who persists through time and undergoes different mental states at different points of time. So the idea is that the fact that memory occurs itself entails that there is a fundamental self. So Vasubandhu tries to explain this away by uh, arguing that, in fact, all we, we can just explain all this by appealing to various kinds of causal connections that obtain between mental states occurring within the same stream of aggregates. So the idea would be that the reason why I can't remember what someone else has experienced is just that whatever they experienced, that experience did not occur in this, in the same stream of aggregates within which the recollective awareness or the memory occurs. So that's the quick answer. But this actually raises more worries for Vasubandhu, namely that Vasubandhu seems to presuppose that there are, we can nicely or cleanly distinguish streams of aggregates from one another. And if we can indeed distinguish streams of aggregates, and, or if there are indeed special causal connections or psychological connections that unify aggregates in a nice and clean way so that one stream of aggregates can be cleanly distinguished from other streams of aggregates, then it seems that we have already committed ourselves to the existence of a self or a person at least. I think the way he solves the problem actually in the text, it does not quite seem satisfactory to me, but I'm going to tell you what the, what the solution is. The solution is, is a 
it appeals to the theory of karma. So according to the theory of karma, every action, good or bad, gives rise to uh, a proportionate result, which could be either good or bad, depending on the nature of the action, through the mediation of these sort of karmic factors which are produced uh, within the relevant stream of aggregates, at least within the Buddhist framework. And these karmic factors, Vasubandhu calls them seeds. These are like seeds in the sense that they mature or they develop and then they result in the action, res result in, say, painful or pleasurable experiences in either this life or a future life. And Vasubandhu thinks that these seeds actually are able to causally unify the, uh, the streams of aggregates so that they can be distinguished from one another. So, so the, the idea is that we don't need to posit any self. We can explain everything using this theory of seeds, which is already sort of embedded within a broader commitment to the theory of karma. Within the historical context within which Vasubandhu is writing, this is not a problem because something similar is pretty much accepted by everyone. But once we take the theory of karma out of the picture, it becomes much harder to buy this theory or to allow at least these sorts of clear-cut distinctions amongst the streams of aggregates. So if you want to take out the theory of karma from this picture, I think the best strategy would be to sort of say that in fact the notion of the strong notion of remembering that the Nyaya philosopher is sort of arguing from itself is problematic because it already presupposes the existence of a self. So we should not, so it's remembering it's not a kind of a mental state that we should be trying to causally explain. Rather, what we should be causally trying to explain is something weaker, which does not require this sort of, uh, the idea that uh, like someone can only remember something that they themselves has, have experienced. So often contemporary theorists talk about quasi-memory. That might be one way to go for someone like Vasubandhu. Thank you for listening. There are plenty more episodes to come in this series, so do subscribe on whichever platform you use, leave us a review, and tell your friends about us. You can also watch video versions of all the talks and many more from previous years on the Royal Institute of Philosophy's YouTube channel. And you can sign up to the Institute's newsletters and find out about our live events at wallinstitutephilosophy.org and follow us on Twitter or Facebook. So until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye. <laughs>